There's another thumb. I've got to take my glasses off so I can see. Okay. Well, before we get started, I want to talk about a little bit what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on. And uh, Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6 is what's going on. We're starting to see the Confederacy, in my view, the Confederacy from the north begin to form. We know the Russians are now allied with the Chinese with respect to the Middle East. The Chinese have been in favor of the Palestinian and the Arab uh, countries ever since Mao. So they have always been anti-Israel. And now, of course, Russia is anti-Israel. And Syria, of course, is allied with Russia. Iran or Persia is allied with Russia. So we're seeing the Confederacy of Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. And God says this about Rosh, Mishash, and Tubal, which, of course, those are ancient names of cities in Russia. Rosh being, of course, Russia. That's the entire land. And then, of course, Meshesh is now called Moscow. You would recognize that. And Tobolsk is Tubal. So these are Russian, uh, ancient Russian cities and, and, and nomenclature. And God says definitively, I am against you, Prince of Rosh. I am against you. And I came across this letter. I thought it was interesting. It says, Israeli official issues warning to Putin on Russian state TV. He says this. We're going to finish this war. That's what he says to Putin and, and Russia. We're going to win because we're stronger. After this, Russia will pay the price. Believe me, Russia will pay the price. So the Israelis know that Russia is coming for them. Russia is supporting the enemies of Israel. Russia is supporting Nazi people who want to commit genocide on us. And Russia will, will pay the price. We're going to win this war. Afterwards, we're not forgetting what you're doing. That's what he's saying to Russia. We're not forgetting. We will come. We will make sure Ukraine wins. We will make sure that you pay the price for what you have done, you as Russia. So I thought that was interesting. But the Israelis, of course, are not oblivious to Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6, or all of the Ezekiel 38. So we're living in a time that is extraordinary. This, Of all the pieces that are in Ezekiel 38 with regard to that confederacy coming from the north to destroy Israel, we have more of those pieces than we've ever had in the history of mankind, frankly. There's more pieces that are, that are valid, more pieces that are exposed than any other time in history. So we may be watching the, the, the beginning of the Ezekiel 38 Confederacy that God will supernaturally destroy and Israel will, be, will begin to be turning towards God, turning towards Christ more specifically. Okay, <clears throat> more on that to come as it, as it continues. Uh, this is October the 22nd, 2023, lecture discussion number 205 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. Uh, I'm not feeling very good again today. I just I was feeling good most of the day, but I began to fade as, as time has gone on. But I'm always surprised at how easy this is for me to do. Here I am with a terrible headache. I'm a little wobbly. My stomach is a little bit shaky. But I can do this. It amazes me. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm programmed to do it or if it just is something that I can't stop doing. Okay, enough of that. For those who are just now joining our little band of intrepid wanderers, some might insist that we're meanderers, not wanderers, especially me. That's more accurate, I assume. Anyway, we, and by we I mean me, me is, uh, has us confronting some of the Bible's greatest mysteries, if not the Bible's greatest mystery. To remind everyone, 
question number one for today, for today, I would submit, is where in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the one half of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy? What is the Genesis 3.15 prophecy? That is where the, the seed of the woman is bruised on the heel by the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman then crushes the head. It's a mortal wound of the seed of the serpent. Where is that prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament is a question. Specifically, the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman inflicted by the seed of the serpent. Where is that in the Bible, in the New Testament? It's going to be there. We have to find it. Included in this question is the reasons Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, presented to Judas the bread of, the honor, the bread of honor at the crucifixion Passover, John 13, 26. Don't forget, when you're in this debate or this discussion, that Jesus Christ gives Judas the bread of honor, the sop, at the crucifixion Passover. And ultimately, this is an act of God because Jesus Christ is God himself giving. He's giving the sop, and it's a gift to Judas. Make no mistake about that. It's a gift. While simultaneously, it's a sign. It's being a sign identifying the one who would deliver the God-man to his judicial trial. Let me repeat that. He knows he's making this a sign. I'm going to give you a gift, and that gift has some significance. The significance is, is that it identifies you as the deliverer of me, that's what Christ is saying, to trial. You're delivering me to a judicial event. And as you know, God was put on trial. And he was found and declared innocent. Uh, Nevertheless, or nonetheless, the execution process was undertaken. So he was found innocent, but he's going to be executed. Now, and notice how I worded that. Whenever we attempt to present the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we are what? We are treading in hallowed ground. And our words must be precisely considered. As you know, as Jesus himself definitively reveals, it is impossible to execute him. He cannot be executed. Let me get some water here. Those of you who have watched me for years might have noticed that I have I have got a compact car now instead of the plat, platinum reversible holy dry erase board. It got too cumbersome and, and it began to break down and we decided to replace it with this. Oh, and I should say I'm back on November 5th. And this is the uh, email address and this is the address for the church, which is, of course, no longer uh, in a commercial building. It is impossible to execute Jesus Christ. He must give up his life himself. That's the only way he can give up his life. No one can take it from him. John 10.17, John 19.30. I should interject the implications of no one. Feel free to consider the scope of no one. What does no one mean when God says no one? The point, yea, a point, is that these statements from the Lord God Almighty are not simple human remarks. We have a tendency to anthropomorphize them and make them human remarks. They're not human remarks. They're godly remarks. They're godly statements. They are proclamations. They're affidavits. They reach far beyond our little puny explanations and understanding. And we have to know that whenever we're dealing with these kinds of issues in the the Bible, especially the crucifixion of Christ. Here's some easy questions for you to think about. Can the angels, any or all of the angels... Could they gather themselves together and kill God? Easy question. No. The answer is no. It's obviously no. How about the representatives from the animal kingdom? How many lions, bears, snakes, tigers, hippos, 
give me whatever you want, crocodile. How many are enough to kill God? They, well, one, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, they'd never even consider it. That's the difference between the animals, the human kingdom, and the angelic kingdom. Again, that's not an easy question. That's a stupid question. It's never going to happen. It can't be done. No one can take the life of Jesus Christ. He must give it willingly. Lastly, Revelation 27-10, through 10, an uncountable army of humanity, as you might remember, surrounds Jerusalem where Christ is sitting on the throne. A number is the sand on the beaches. There's so many of them. They're uncountable. And what are they coming to do? They assemble to kill the King of Kings. That's their plan. They're going to kill Christ. Are they going to kill Christ? How's that going to work out? Not well. Read the text. That's that's the height of understatement. Not well. Anyway, whenever you enter into the subject that is the death of Christ, and that's what we're doing today, Step really slow. Take little tiny steps and make them very slow. It's like chewing your food. Take your time. Step softly. Be in awe. Don't touch anything. You're in a room. Don't touch anything. So stare and marvel at what God has done and why He is doing it and what He is doing. And and consider all of that. But again, don't leap to any conclusions and certainly don't be running around knocking things over. For today, just note this, that the Ancient of Days, that's Jesus Christ, He is the Ancient of Days. It's a time reference. He's outside of time. And He is the Judge of all things. Daniel 7, 9-10, through 10, Revelation 1, 12-17, Revelation 20, 11, John 5, 22. He put Satan on trial. Genesis 3, 15. The Ancient of Days, put, and you can see how He looks, He put Satan on trial. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Did Satan like that? How did Satan respond to that? Why did God allow him to respond to it? Why did he Why did he put him out on bail? That's essentially what he did because Satan is running loose right now. He didn't imprison him immediately. He could have. He didn't. He's out. He's out on recognizance. He's got an ankle bracelet. Want to think of it that way? And so anyway, Satan and Judas are going. To, they're going to respond. They, now, when I say Judas, I'm saying the seed of the serpent is Judas. I've said that for a thousand times. So if you haven't caught that before, that's my position. And so this is the Satan man. And they reciprocate and they counterfeit the trial where Satan is condemned by arranging a trial for the Ancient of Days. So in other words, they're going to try the Ancient of Days for trying them. They're going to put the Ancient of Days on trial. And obviously this is something that Satan has orchestrated as some kind of mocking reciprocity. If God were to condemn Satan, then Satan is responding by judicially finding the Ancient of Days guilty as well. He's going to try the Ancient of Days. And this raises a multitude of questions. What were the charges against Christ? Now, you, you think you know. Most people think they know because they assume they know because they have the Pharisees, they have Pilate, they have Herod. And they have the Romans and they figure, okay, we know what the charges are. Satan was found guilty of this. Remember that statement that Christ makes? Because you have done this, you're now more accursed than anything, anyone that has ever existed. Animal or human being or, human being or angel. Because you have done this, you are condemned, Genesis 3.14. And the this, in this case, 
was the attempted murder of the woman. Satan attacked the woman. And he attacked the woman in order to get to the man. Because the man had replaced him as, as the king of Eden. Ezekiel 28, verses uh, Genesis uh, 1 through 3. So in other words, this Satan was put on trial in Genesis 3.14 for the attempted murder of the woman because he didn't succeed. He wounded her. And he, he put her life in danger. But she was saved by the man and ultimately driven out by Christ. And she was therefore protected from the tree of life and being in sin forever, she'd reached out and touched it or grabbed it and ate from it. That's a complicated thing and I don't have time to cover it. But not, my point today is it's not likely limited just to the movement. I'm sorry. Just to the woman. So, Satan is put on trial for the attempted murder, but it's not just the woman he's put on trial for. Something else is there. Something else is always there. And this isn't his first trial in my position. I believe that Satan has had at least two trials. And he's going to have a third. So how much this is this, I guess, would be the question. Because you have done this, we have to define this. And you can't restrict it just to the attempted murder of the woman. It's got to be more than that. It's always more than that. So what is the this? How much does it, what's the scope of it, if you will? How much this is in this? Anyhow, what were the judicial accusations brought against Christ? Because he was put on trial. The Ancient of Days, God himself in the flesh, was put on trial. That's insanity, isn't it? But it was. That's what happened. And so what are his charges and how do they, how do they correspond to Satan's charges? Satan knows and expects always that the angelic host is listening and watching. He knows that. Because they are always listening and watching. Every time Satan does something, everybody sees it. Every time God does something, everybody sees it in the angelic hells. Remember Genesis 3.4. The serpent of old, Revelation 12.9, who deceives the whole world, deceives the woman, he presents a small piece of his accusation. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a direct reference to Genesis 2.17. And to the woman's response to the serpent's question of Genesis 3, 1, 3, 2, and 3, 3. And here's what the serpent says. Here's what Satan says. And this gives you a clue to what he was charged with. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? That's a question. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Obviously, Satan heard God when he said to Adam, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, that the tree of death was in fact exactly that, certain death. Satan heard that conversation. Satan heard God tell Adam, don't eat from that tree. It's the tree of certain death. There's a lot of questions. Here's another easy question. How many angels, fallen and faithful, watched and heard God speak to Adam about death? Adam and God have a, a discussion about death. We know it. We could read it. It's there. How many angels, fallen and faithful, were watching and how many of them heard God speak to Adam about that death situation? Why would God explain, announce to Adam that death was inside the creation? Because that's what he did. We have this beautiful garden. We have all of this life. We have all of this tranquility, if you will, all of this innocence. And God takes time to say, 
Death is here. You have a tree of death and a tree of life. Don't go to the tree of death. So why did God warn Adam of death? Why is death even possible for Adam? Because it is, right? There's a tree. He could go to it and he did ultimately. And he brought sin and death to the whole world in Romans 5. But again, why would God explain? Why would he announce to Adam that, the, that there was death inside of the creation? Let me go back. Who's listening to this conversation between Adam and God? Who is? Who's doing it? The entire angelic host, right? He did, God did this because death had come from the angelic realm. And had come to the angelic realm. We have dead angels as God defines death. One-third of the angels, Revelation 12, forward dead as God defines death. So he, he tells Adam, death is in the creation. Now, start thinking about how Adam responded to that. and Start thinking about why God did it. First and foremost, God would not hide the fact that the angels had death in it, had death in that, in that realm. He didn't hide it. What if he had hidden it and never told Adam about death? And never put a tree of death there? What would he be accused of by Satan? God must tell Adam about death. Why? Death was a reality. And Adam needed to know about death, the death process, if you will. Specifically, the steps that go towards death. Because there's always an order, there's always a... Uh, timeline. There's always uh, some kind of process. Mark 7, 20-23 where Christ says and asks, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? Whenever God asks a question, obviously God knows the answer. What comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the hearts of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, wickedness, deceit, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. That's what he says. That's what God says. Mark 7, 20-23. How does death begin? What's the first step of death? Go ahead. I think you're absolutely correct. He has to tell him. Whiteboard a foot? Okay. My foot or your foot? Is that good? Okay. Look how multitasking capable I am. But for today, and all of this is very important. You just again, uh, Dave was trying to figure out why he had to tell Adam, and he had to tell Adam to, in order to defend Adam. How much contact had Adam already had with Satan? How often did Satan come into the garden to talk to Adam? And so those, those kind of questions have to be there. <coughs> but for today, just notice the evil eye reference, Matthew twenty fifteen, an evil eye. So you see something and your eye makes it evil. Your eye ha- so there are people who have evil eyes, God says about them. Evil proceeds from evil thoughts. So the first process in the evil business is an evil thought. 
And that evil eye reference, Matthew 20.15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Or is your eye evil because I am good? You see me and you have an evil thought immediately. And do you have that evil thought because I am good? That's what he is saying to the Pharisees. Also consider the satanic fall, the order, if you if you will, that led to Satan embracing evil and murder and lying from the beginning, the father of lies, John 8.44. Start thinking about when did Satan think an evil thought? When did he have an evil eye? And then why did he have an evil eye? Why does he have the capability of evil? Yeah, we can answer that question pretty quickly. Okay, so place John 8.44 alongside of Ezekiel 28.12-17 because that is the 28.12-17 is the first mineral Eden that Satan was in. Satan was the seal of perfection. He was the anointed cherub. But he began to lie. And Ezekiel 28.16 brings that out. It's called the abundance of your traffic. So he began to lie. Now, again, you have to ask, why did he want to lie? What's his motivation here? What's he thinking? We have clues in Isaiah 14. We have clues in Ezekiel 28. We have clues in Psalm 10 to try to figure it out. God obviously explains all of that to Adam. He's got to explain. The first thing Adam's going to ask him when God says there's a tree of certain death, there's death in the creation, what's Adam going to do? Why is there death? God is going to explain it. And Satan lied to as many angels as he could reach. He spread his lies almost as a virus as it went from angel to angel to angel until it got one-third of them that fell. They believed the lie of Satan. Why did they believe the lie of Satan and why would they want to believe the lie of Satan? Somebody came to me and said, such and such is a serial killer and I knew them. I wouldn't want to believe it. But angels in the angelic realm, they embraced death. They wanted to believe the lie. And again, it started in Eden, the first Eden. That's the mineral Eden, Ezekiel 28.13, the first garden of God. That's the first place there is a garden of God. And Satan is walking in the garden just like Adam walked in the garden. Satan is in authority of that garden just like Adam is in authority of the garden. And it's important to know that those two things exist. And Satan, anyway, became a violent murderer. He became corrupted. He became a horror. And it all began with Satan saying to himself, I shall never be in adversity. I can do whatever I want. And I will never have accountability. I will never be judged. I'll never be put on trial. He started by lying to himself. If he did know it was a lie, he didn't care. He liked the lie. He was very proud of his lie. And the Bible talks about the lack of humility. He was so so proud of how beautiful he was and how intelligent he was that it ultimately corrupted him. So us ugly people, we have a benefit. Anyway, he became a horror, the Bible says. And it all began with Satan saying to himself, I shall never be in adversity. I'll never be held accountable. I'll never be put on trial. I'll never be judged. He says that in Psalm 10.3, 10.6-7, 10.13. So no judgment, he believed, 
I don't know if he believed it, but he liked saying it. Maybe he just wanted to see how many people he could, or how many angels he could convince. How many angels he could turn away from God. So, again, no judgment is possible. That's what Satan is thinking, or at least saying. And why did Satan come to this conclusion? If he did come to that conclusion, he might not have. He might have thought judgment is possible, but I'm, I'm going to outsmart. I'm going to be able to make it so that judgment never comes, which is also impossible. He's dealing with the timeless, infinite, omniscient God of creation. And this is why this is, let me say a better, better way than what I was going to do. All of what I gave you is called the why of Satan's lie question. So ask yourself, why did he lie? What was his ultimate motivation? Why did he continue to lie? What started all of this? Why did God tell Adam about it? Why would Satan choose to become the adversary to God? The Bible says he fell because of his pride. He rejected humility. Proverbs 16:18. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Right? We all know that. Proverbs 16:18 clearly is describing Satan as well as all of the fallen angels and all of the fallen men. God says come to him with what? Humility. You see the tax collector or the tax agent He's praying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What he's talking about, the mercy, is the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And there's blood on that mercy seat. And he's saying, put that mercy blood on me. Have mercy blood. Lord, have mercy blood put on me. Christ said, where is that man? That man is justified. He will be saved. So that's humility. We don't have a lot of humility in our society anymore. But again, Proverbs 16:18 is describing the fall of Satan. And all of that, all of this that I've gone through in order to establish that an evil thought precedes an evil act. The woman thought the tree was good. Why would she do that? Adam had told her the tree is certain death. But she thought the tree was good. The Bible says so. God said it was certain death. She thought it was good. The woman thought it was pleasant and desirable and God said, no, it's death personified. But that was her thought process. That was her first thought. As soon as she had that thought, she was in trouble. Satan manipulated the Pharisees. They're called his brood of serpents, a brood of vipers, Matthew 23, So they are his children, so to speak. And he manipulates them. Not to their advantage. They think it's advantageous, but it's not. What he's doing is killing them. And he, he manipulated them to foolishly seize God. Because that's what they did. They hired Judas and Satan to go tell them which one was God. And, of course, they didn't know that, but which one was Christ. And then we will seize Christ. And so they, they seize the Ancient of Days. They seize the one that is outside of time, the timeless one, and they put him on trial. So Jesus Christ, God himself, the Ancient of Days, the timeless one, the infinite God, the King of Kings, he's put on trial. And I'm saying to you that it is a reciprocity. It's repayment. What Satan is doing is, you put me on trial, I'll put you on trial. And so this arrangement 
uh, is really a, a, an avengement for Christ. For Christ presiding at Satan's trial and handing down condemnation. If I said that badly, let me repeat it. Christ put Satan on trial and condemned him. So Satan puts Christ on trial. and doesn't condemn him. But still the execution is still uh, in, intact. God declared Satan a curse, Genesis 3.14. And that should have triggered in you Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So here, now, start getting all these pieces. Satan's put on trial and called a curse. More a curse than any, any, any living being animal or angel or human. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law and has become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree, Deuteronomy 21.23. And Christ hung from a cross. And so he became a curse for us. Now, this is where the questions begin to just detonate. When did Jesus Christ become a curse? And how does Satan and Judas figure into this? Matthew 27, 5, Acts 1, 18 through 19, and Zechariah 11 through 11, 13. 11, 13 is Zechariah, Judas throws the money, trying to stop the crucifixion. Acts 1, 18 and 19, Judas hangs himself. Matthew 27, 5, again, he's trying to, uh, he's, he's declares Christ to be innocent. Let me ask this again. When did Jesus Christ become a curse for us? When? Exactly when? Did Christ become a curse for us? In the garden? Or on the cross? Or both? Let me repeat that. Did Christ become a curse for us in the garden or on the cross? Yes. Well, that's correct. That is absolutely correct. Physically, when did he do it? Obviously, the shedding of the blood of the cross washes away our sins, right? We know that. For those who believe and trust Jesus Christ for salvation, his blood on the cross washes our, cleanses us. Our death penalty is expunged, it's deleted, it's wiped out, and we are given eternal life, 1 Peter 3.18, the just for the unjust. For Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. He pays the price. All of this and more is articulated repeatedly in Scripture. There can be no doubt as to the death of Christ being the price for paid for sin. There can be no doubt. What I am asking is what is the role of the cup of Gethsemane? And what crimes was Satan accusing Christ of? Satan's the prosecution. What crimes is he, and he has his proxies, obviously. What what are the crimes that Satan is accusing Christ of? And do you suppose, here's this question again, it's always there. Do you suppose, or do you not suppose, would be a better way to put it, that angels watch both the cup and and the crucifixion? Is there something that uh, connects the Gethsemane cup to the Golgotha crucifixion? Notice how I said that, Golgotha. That's the place where the skull of Goliath is. 
and Christ puts his cross right on top of the skull of Goliath. How many angels watch that? How many angels watch the cup at Gethsemane and how many angels watch the crucifixion? What's your answer? And I am not, just to be clear, advancing a position suggesting that the cup of Gethsemane has equality with the cross and the crucifixion of Golgotha. I'm not saying that. The death of the cross of God, I'm sorry, the death on the cross of God is not subject to equalization. Nothing can equal it. Two things must be believed in order to be saved. Two things. You must believe Jesus is God and you must believe He died on the cross. I had two uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, no, two Mormons knock on the door, wonderful little ladies, girls, and they had no idea who they, whose door they rang. And I asked them that. I said, do you believe Jesus is God? You must believe He's God or you will not be saved. And you must believe He died on the cross. Do you believe that? And they just stared at me. I said, come on, it's an easy answer. Say yes for my sake. Yes, we believe that. I said, okay, great. Get out of the Mormon church. Because your church doesn't believe that at all. Does not believe that Christ is. You, you believe that Christ can become a God. I'm saying that He is a God. He is God Himself. And he can't. Anyhow, that, that debate took about 30 minutes. The mystery here is not comprehensible. Jesus Christ is God and He died on the cross. We can't, we can't figure that out. We have a finite mind. A human finite mind will never be able to conceive the death of God. The death of Christ. All we can do is believe it is true and rejoice that it's true and we're given eternal life. Resurrected and into eternal life. That's fantastic. We don't have to understand it. We just have to believe it's true. But we should try to figure out as much as we can, you know, get some limited understanding, be able to at least articulate it to Mormon women to come to your door. For example, what I'm noticing is there's symmetry. In other words, there's connectivity between this cup and the cross. Things that are in common, and then there's things that are distinct. And I'm trying to figure out how they all fit together. That's my plan. For example, there is unprecedented anguish. Dist- dist- ah, gosh. There is unprecedented anguish demonstrated by Christ over the drinking of the cup. Matthew 26:42. His soul is exceedingly sorrowful and deeply distressed. Matthew 26:36 through 38. Jesus Christ, God Himself, says to His disciples, "My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death." That's God who said that. I have such sorrow that it's approaching the point of death. Then he adds another mysterious element. He says to his disciples, stay here and watch with me. What is he doing? What were they supposed to watch? What would or what did they see? Stay here and watch with me. I'm going to go over there and you stay here and you watch with me. You watch me. Remember Luke 22, 39-45 reveals that the apostles passed out. They passed out from watching Him. 
He had great drops of blood that fell to the ground from his body. And they fell and they couldn't handle it and they passed out from sorrow, Luke says. What was it that they were seeing at Gethsemane? The Godhead, the Elohim, the us, one twenty six Genesis, three twenty two Genesis, the us. The Elohim was in Gethsemane, the three that are one, the triunity, the us of Genesis again, one twenty six, three twenty two. They have come to Gethsemane, all three are there. They are distinct persons, but they're all God. So they're they're the same but distinct. I make sense of that. That sounds like a contradiction, but that's what it is. Jesus' prayer is astonishing. This is what he says, Oh, my Father. Now, notice that. Oh, my Father. If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. That's what he says. The cup cannot pass unless God, I'm sorry, the cup cannot pass unless Jesus Christ drinks it. Why? I think it's obvious that that Jesus God drank the cup. I think he did drink the cup. The apostles were to watch him drink the cup. That's the point. Come here, watch me drink the cup. I want you to see me drink the cup. And they pass out. He wakes them up. But he is grieving over the drinking of the cup to the point of death. Extraordinary. God was deeply, more deeply saddened than we could ever conceive. And he wanted his disciples to watch and stay with him to witness this act that, he, that cannot pass. He can't, it's got to go. The cup cannot pass. How does the living God get to this point of death? Can we understand that? No. We can't. The answer is no. Not just no, but no. We can't understand any of this. What is this point of death for God? Matthew 26:38. What is that? There's something there. What is it? We can collect God's weeping in Genesis 6-6 because he weeps in Genesis 6-6 over the wickedness of mankind when the thoughts of man were only evil continually. So we got that. We know that Jesus wept again in John 11-35-38 at the cemetery where Lazarus was buried and tombed. So we got that information. Glean that information. Clues, if you will. Come up with something where God is more distressed than he was at the cup of Gethsemane. Is there there anything that compares to it? He says to the apostles, watch this. He wanted them to, all of his apostles, to see what was going to happen. We've got got other passages. We've got John 19.30 provides the drinking of the sour wine when the Jews had received the sour wine. I'm sorry, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. So he drinks the sour wine and says, "It's, it's finished. When he drank the cup of Gethsemane, did he say it's finished? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, it says in, in uh, John 19.30. He finished, the, he drank the sour wine. Now there's arguments about this, whether he did or not. So he was presented this sour wine. He says it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
John 19.28, it says this, After this, Jesus Christ, knowing all things, were now accomplished that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So we got more information there. There's an order. What came first, the cup of Gethsemane or the crucifixion? Do you, you should be able to tell me which one that is. Which came first, the cup of Gethsemane or the crucifixion? Obviously, in the order of things, cup of Gethsemane. What came last? 1928 of John. I thirst. It is finished. The price is paid in full. After the price in blood was paid, he releases his spirit. He has control over his spirit. Duh. He can release his spirit whenever he wants. Probably did it all the time. Now, I am suggesting that the cup is tied to the cross. Again, I want to emphasize, there's not equality. The cup is not equal to the cross. I'm saying that the, the cup is tied to the cross somehow. This tremendous agony that God has at Gethsemane, which is the same garden of, that Adam had, right? Same place, same GPS. He has all of this agony. There are those who propose that the drinking of the cup is the same as the cross. You'll see that sameness all the time. The cup is the, is the cross. The cross is the, is the cup. Uh, I, I, I submit that there are two phases and not... Again, there's no equality with the cross. The cross stands alone. But I submit that there are two phases. There's two advents. Obviously, there's some kind of symbioticism here. They're fitting together a close association between two events. There's interdependence between the cup and the cross. I'm not saying the cup causes the cross. because That's not true. I'm just saying the cup has something to do with the crucifixion. And again, let me repeat, the agony of God, the fact the Elohim is there, the, the blood dripping off of Him, this watch me, beware of, of Temptation, all of these things that he is saying elevates the cup of Gethsemane to a pretty high level. Not, high, not as high as a cross. It's still an incredible, there's something amazing happened here. To say it a different way, there's an order and the first event contributes to the second, making the second even more powerful, more preeminent. So they're additive. So how is this so and why is this so and what is the Elohim saying to us here? And having spent many years in the church and reading and listening to hundreds of sermons that address the crucifixion of Christ, and most of those sermons are based on the seven sayings from the cross and the most covered of the seven sayings being the fourth. I have something in keeping my eye. My eye is twitching here. And the fourth, of course, is the question that God asks a question. And God says on the cross, this question, asks this question, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Does he know the answer? When God asks a question, he's omniscient, he knows the answers. Let me ask you a question. Does God forsake God? It's a math problem, isn't it? Both are omnipresent and infinite. All of them are. The three that are one. Distinct but the same. Three distinct persons but all the same. Triunity. 
Can omnipresent, infinite omnipresent forsake infinite omnipresent? So immediately it's obvious that Christ is not speaking for himself. When he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is not talking about himself. As you know, if you've followed me for the, over the years, you know that this is Israel. He's quoting Psalm 22.1. That's the hind of the morning. Psalm 22.1 is a song. And that's a song that is sung by Israel. They are the hind of the morning. Jesus Christ does not say, my God, my God. What does he say? He says, my father, my father. So he's not talking about himself. He is speaking for Israel. He is in the position of Israel, screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Because Israel believes God has forsaken them. And it hasn't happened. God is going to restore Israel. Much to the misery of people who hate Israel, of which there is a legion growing every day by it's exponential. It's logarithmic. The people that hate the nation of Israel and they hate the people that are in Israel. and There's just a tremendous amount of hatred now sweeping around the globe. But Jesus did not say, my God, my God, about himself. He always says, my father, my father. And that's, that's the first clue that the so-called words of, the, of anguish, that's what they call the fourth saying of the seventh saying, the words of anguish. That, they were not said in anguish. They're not, they, they think they're expressing the anguish of Christ being forsaken, but that's not true in my view. And they're nowhere near the anguish that ex, uh, that's expressed in Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 through 39, Luke 22, 42 through 44. That's where the agony of Jesus is described. Matthew 27, 46 is not applicable. The death of God on the cross is a triumph. It's a victory. Hebrews 2, 14, Revelation 20, 14. Luke 23:48 The crowd that was witnessing the death of Jesus after it was finished began to beat their breasts with their hands in remorse. I submit that they recognized that the poor saying was the words of the nation of Israel and they knew it they knew the song the hind of the morning. Jesus is warning Israel that they are risking abandonment similar to Ezekiel 10:18 when the Shekinah glory left the temple. Leaving, leaving through the east gate, Genesis 3.24. God has a tendency to leave through the east gate all the time. He put Adam out on, on the east gate. In Ezekiel 10.18, he left by the east gate. Why is the east gate so important? Anyway, I, I began to wonder, because I do wonder about stuff, just how complicated is the crucifixion? How complicated is the death of Christ? That's a big duh. It's unbelievable and we'll never get it. And I don't think he can ever explain it to us without somehow adjusting our capability. And I don't think he would explain it even then. How many threads are there to untangle with respect to the crucifixion of Christ? For today, though, just reflect on the cup of Gethsemane. Consider what is necessary for this cup to bring great drops of blood to fall to the ground in great deep distress, sorrow even to death for the King of Kings in ancient days? What causes that response? This cup is causing that response. How much is hidden here? 
I will point out, yea, a point out. Matthew 6.13 and Matthew 26.41 are most certainly tied together. And do not lead us into temptation. We all know 6.13. Do not lead us into temptation. But what? But deliver us. There's that theme. But deliver us from the evil one. Not evil, evil one. That's being referenced at Matthew 26.41 when he says, don't give in to temptation. He's referencing 6.13 of Matthew, Lord's Prayer. Again, watch for what? He says, watch. Pray for what? You pray. And you watch. What are they supposed to see? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So what was the temptation that they were going to fall to if they didn't pray? Feel free to offer your opinions. Has anyone come to the conclusion as to what was the accusation, Satan's accusation? What was the charges? The defendant is Jesus Christ, the Creator God of all things. That's the defendant that's on trial. What's he charged with? What crimes has he committed? The centurion and Pilate, Luke 23.47 and Luke 23.4, announce the innocence of the condemned. They say he's innocent. Innocent. And not only did they do it, but Satan and Judas, Matthew 27.3, they said that he was innocent. How complicated is this? This is a seemingly innocuous detail ingredient here. Why did Judas, Satan, declare Christ to be innocent? And what's the rule for today? Who's always watching? The angels are always watching. And Judas and Satan go in front of the Pharisees running as fast as they can to say, that's an innocent man. What did the angels think of that? The faithful angels, we can imagine what they thought. How's the Calvinist going to deal with that? Judas and Satan say, he's innocent. Thank you. Innocent of what? Innocent of everything. Includes evil. He has no evil in him. He's completely, totally innocent. Satan and Judas announced that God is innocent. The Lord God Almighty is judged. The verdict is guilty. The sentence is immediate. It's going to be execution after scourging. And the means of the execution is crucifixion. And I repeat the question. What is the capital offense? Who is the prosecutor here, by proxy or otherwise? Who ultimately is bringing the charges? And if you reason the Pharisees and the Jewish citizenry, well, I often see that at some basic primitive level, that's correct. But I'm saying it's a lot deeper than that. Crucifixion is more substantial than the test of Job. Don't you agree? The angels witnessed the testing of Christ, Matthew 4.11. And they witnessed the testing of Job, Job 1.6. At Gethsemane, the Holy Spirit came and assisted Christ, Luke 22.43. The Holy Spirit comes and strengthens. God strengthens God. Who else can do it? It has to be God. Only God can strengthen God. So 
So I have all of those little pieces. Now here's an easy question. How many angels watched the Elohim bring out the cup at Gethsemane? Because no one had probably ever seen it before knew what it was until he brought it out of Gethsemane. And Christ says to the Godhead, let this cup pass and I, I must drink it. And all of those things. Here's another easy question. How many angels watched the crucifixion death of Christ? All of them is the answer, with the exception of the imprisoned Something happened? I, I, okay, but we still... Okay, level air drive. Okay. It says I got a green light. Test, test, test. Okay, seems, seems like it's working. Okay, where am I? I ask that question every day, no matter what, huh? Again, all of them except the imprisoned fallen angels, and that explains why in First Peter three eighteen and nineteen, why he goes to talk to them, because they didn't see it, they didn't know, so he goes to tell them. Did he bring a video camera? And by the way, the charges leveled against him is that God is a murderer. From the beginning, and God is a liar from the beginning. Those are the charges. They sound familiar? Now, again, I hate to pick on the Calvinists, but they say the same thing. From the beginning, God is a murderer of, of people. They are impossible to be saved, so they're, therefore they're murdered. And it's beyond obvious that those are the charges. The father of lies and the murderer from the beginning, John 8:44, accuses the God of creation, Colossians 1:15 through 18, of exactly what God said about Satan. You're going to call me a liar and a murderer. I'm going to call you a liar and a murderer. You're going to give me a trial. I'm going to try you. And the angels are going to watch all of it. And now the obvious questions then arise: Whom did Christ murder, according to Satan? I answered that already, didn't I? And why did God murder them? If you say God's a murderer, why is he a murderer? Who did he murder and why did he murder them? Now, who says that he's a murderer? Again, I will say to you, this predestinational position is equivalent to calling God a murderer. What is the lie that Christ has supposedly propagated? Well, Christ has gone by the abundance of his own traffic. He's gone around lying to people. What's the lie that he's got? And who is the jury in this trial? If the lake of the of fire is the second de- death, and it is, Revelation 20:14, then all that are cast into the lake of fire are dead as God defines death. That's how he defines it. We don't define it the way he does. His, his definition is one that matters. To repeat Matthew 25:41, the lake of fire was prepared for Satan and his angels, the wicked ones. There is no peace for the wicked ones, Isaiah 57.21. Isaiah 47.10 through 47.15 provides a brief picture of the wicked. Alongside of Genesis 6.5, the thoughts of the wicked of mankind was only evil continually. The wicked are pure, complete evil. Every thought is always evil. That's who the wicked are. That is who the lake of fire is for. Sodom and Gomorrah were only wicked and evil thoughts continually, as the sons of Belial, Judges 19. All of those cases are only evil all the time and they can't be anything else but evil 
Once you become evil, you stay evil. And you become wicked. The imprisoned angels, they're only wicked. They're always evil. Revelation 9, 1 Peter 3.19, Jude 6. They're always evil. So when was the lake of fire prepared becomes the question I've asked many times. Before the creation of Adam or after the creation of Adam? When was the lake of fire? You decide. A simple question could be asked of the new city of Jerusalem. When was the new city of Jerusalem constructed? Before the creation of Adam or after the creation of Adam? And feel free to submit your position papers. And never raise your hand at cliffside. Isaiah 47.10, God said to the wicked ones, You have trusted in your wickedness, for you have said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And I have said, and you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. In other words, they have said, I am. That's a reference to God Himself. They become so wicked that they think they're God. Who is the the I am that I am? Exodus three fourteen. Who is He speaking to it in Isaiah forty seven ten? Most commentators assume God is speaking to the city of Babylon by extension, then the great whore of Babylon, Revelation 17, 1 through 18. The woman who's drunk with the blood of the saints. When the apostle saw the great whore, he was greatly amazed. Most commentators say that's who God's speaking to at 47, uh, of Isaiah 47:10. Uh, I'm not so sure. As you know, there's a bottomless pit of hell, Revelation 9, 1. There's a bottomless pit. So there's a deep place. Christ has the key, Revelation 3.7. And we are told that the wicked angels are imprisoned in the bottomless pit of hell. The implied result of this is that there are levels in hell. We've had that discussion before. I'm not advocating for purgatory or anything like that, but apparently there seems to be levels. And if so, are there levels in the lake of fire? Is there a deeper place? In the lake of fire for the very worst of the worst. Anyway, all of this and, and most of the, of the lecture so far was to try to shed some light on the purpose and the scope of the Cup of Gethsemane, uh, which uh, I may or may not have been able to do that. I hope I did it a little bit. The jury is still sequestered, I'm sure. I have a lot more to go. So how am I going to fill the remaining time? How much remaining time do I got? One minute? Hopefully some of you have been contemplating the New Testament fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Where is it? Where is this specifically the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman by the seed of the serpent? Where is that? Where did it happen? And the question is, is what's the definition of the bruising of the heel? Jesus Christ actually addresses this mysteriously by quoting Psalm 41.9 and John 13.18. Even my own familiar friend, he says, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes 41.9 of Psalm. And, and though this verse, 41.9 Psalm, includes the symbolic lifting up of the heel, it does not specify any wounding of the heel of Christ by the Satan man. He lifted up the heel. Did he stomp on Christ's heel? And how did, how did he get a wounded heel on Christ? How do you get a wound on, on God? But for today, keep in mind, Jesus referred to Judas as his friend. Matthew 26.50 Friend, why have you come? Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Friend, why have you come? Did you think he was being sarcastic? No. 
He saw his friend. And obviously Christ being omniscient, God never trusted Judas. Jesus called him the devil, John 6, 70. But yet he calls him friend too. Very important. So reconciling Psalm 41.9 and Genesis 3.15 is, is quite the task. Okay, where did the wounding of Christ occur and how was Judas involved in it? And you might, because of today, conclude that the cup of Gethsemane might be the bruising of the heel. How many of you think the cup of Gethsemane is the bruising of the heel? I got one tepid little hand, but never raise your hand. One person never know we're going to raise your hand. The other one thinks it might be Gethsemane. Certainly got to think it is, huh? Strong case. How does the cup apply to Judas and Satan, though? They weren't there. And Judas has to inflict it. And it, definitely, and it is definitely involved in the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. It definitely is. So it leads to that. And the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is here because I have the wood representing humanity and that's the crimson worm that attaches to wood. Jonah 3.7, Psalm 22.6, Christ says, I am that worm. So I have, the, I have the Ark of the Covenant completely made of wood, completely covered the wood by gold. And gold represents deity and wood represents humanity. So what are we talking about the Ark of the Covenant? It comes into the discussion. The Ark is a symbol of Christ. That's the God-man. That is humanity covered by deity. The mystery that can never be solved, First Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness. Inside the Ark is a whole bunch of stuff. But what primarily was it made for? What was the first thing to go into it? The law of Moses. The ark protects the people from the law. All of which seems to lead to the cup of Gethsemane, doesn't it? Same problem. I got an ark covered by deity, whether it's humanity, and something goes inside of it. I should address the common thinking from the theologically educated, and that this being that the, the bruising of the heel occurs on the cross. That's what they say. The cross is the bruising of the heel. And the list of events from the cross is difficult to reconcile with this view, in my opinion. For example, Simeon the Syrian has to carry the cross beam because Christ is twirling it like a baton and screaming in a loud voice and having a great time. And they're going wherever he wants. And he's decided he's going to go to Golgotha, Gol Goliath. He's going to go to the cross or the skull of Goliath. Nobody can stop him. He's not going to go on the road. He's going up on a hill. And the veil of the holy of here, of I'm sorry, the veil of the holy of holies was torn in two, top to bottom, and that thing is really thick. So that happened from the cross. The earthquake, rocks were split and graves were opened and many bodies of the saints were resurrected. That happened from the cross. And the thief was saved. And the centurion was saved. Psalm 22.1 was quoted and in his loud voice for all of Israel, all of the world to hear it. Exodus 19, Matthew 27.51-54 The whole crowd who saw and heard these things expressed remorse and anguish. Luke 23.48 So a whole bunch of people got saved. How would you classify these things, especially the tearing of the veil which blocked entry into the Holy of Holies and the throne room of God? So now we all have access to the throne room of God because of that. Is that a bruising of the heel? Any of these that I just listed off, and there is a lot of them, a lot more. Any of those apply to the wounding of Christ? Doesn't sound like it to me. I see victory over death, not the bruising of his heel. That's just me. 
Obviously, Judas and Satan, they didn't see bruising of the heel, did they? They attempted to convince the Pharisees to stay the execution. They don't want that execution. They saw the cross as something, oh, this is not good for us. This is a fly trying to bother me. I should take a bath at least once a year. Why would they try to stop the execution, Matthew 27, 3 through 5? Ultimately, they fashioned a crude facsimile, a duplication, a counterfeit death on a tree with all the inferences of panic. Well, what are we going to do? Well, you've got you to hang yourself. Okay, let's do it. Hurry. Throw the, throw the silver. Run and get a, get a rope. Where are we going to go? We're going to go to a field of blood. Whatever happened on that field of blood? Something happened there. Is that the burial place of Abel? People want to know. I want to know. Uh, but so it's interestingly, Judas was Satan inside of him, John thirteen twenty seven, fell headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his entrails gushed out, Acts 1, 18 through 19. That doesn't sound like he bruised anybody's heel. So where is the bruising of the heel? It's got to be there somewhere. It's got to be. That prophecy has to be fulfilled. It seems the rope broke, doesn't it? And Judas was impaled on something. And so I'm going to notice the death of Absalom. 2 Samuel 18, 10-16. I'm going to notice that. And the uncontrollable weeping and mourning of King David. They couldn't. He mourned and wept and they couldn't stop him. They got mad at him. He just they couldn't keep him couldn't get him back to normal. Uncontrollable weeping and mourning of King David over the death of Absalom. Absalom was committed to killing the King David, the shepherd king. He tried to kill him. And David wept and wept and wept over Absalom. And Absalom was caught in a terambite tree. In fact he was hanging in a terambite tree. Second Samuel eighteen nine, and the shepherd king grieved for his son. David could not be consoled. And remember what Simeon said in Luke two twenty five. Jesus Christ is the consolation of Israel. And with that, we shut it down.